thank you so much, Azure, for joining me today. Very excited to chat about your interesting journey and and how you ended up on doing regenerative farming and, and ended up at Yellow Barn Farm. Just got back from there. It was really an amazing experience. The first time I've ever planted a tree. And it was, uh, I got to say, I didn't really think anything of it. But when you do do it and you're in the act and you see like everybody doing it and then like how this is going to be here, like it's, it's a pretty cool thing. It's a really cool moment. So thank you for that. <laughs> but before we start a to talk about Yellow Barn Farm, like talk a little bit about your journey and, and how does one end up working on, you know, regenerative farming? Because you have a you have an yeah. interesting path, you know, you just wasn't your intention. <laughs> Definitely not the intention. Very surprised that I ended up here, actually. Well, to back up far enough, my parents actually moved to Boulder, Colorado when I was seven years old. I think that was like 1998. And we moved into this neighborhood right next door to this farm. Mm. And every day we would pass it and my mom would give all the horses names. And it was just kind of this magical place that was far away, but nearby and, you know, somewhere we had never been able to access. And then one day it came up for sale and my parents just like truly felt the universe talking to them saying that they had to go over and look at this farm and their businesses were doing well. And they ended up kind of buying this place on a whim, but it was very much like Green Acres. Like they had never done anything with land. My dad was like a, tile restoration contractor doing cleaning products and my mom was a had lived in california doing entertainment tonight and um very much like high so what year is this what year is this this was mm, probably 2001 at that point okay and um yeah just very magically they ended up owning this 100 acre property uh very much learning how to run an entire equestrian center there were over 50 horses being boarded here at that time and once they took over ownership it was truly like the most magical childhood upbringing you could even imagine we had pretty much free reign in the entire property and i got to just hang out with my horse every day. And we did a lot of like competitive dressage, which is like that very high end horseback riding style. Oh, okay. um, but yeah, mostly yeah, yeah. I just wanted to gallop through the field. So I was mostly getting in trouble for doing things like that. But it was incredible. We had all these different kinds of animals, goats, sheep, alpacas, tortoise, and um, just getting to grow up on the land. You know, mm-hmm. you really learn from nature. She really becomes your teacher. And over time, my sister and I grew up and kind of stopped riding and moved moved out to the East Coast. She was in New York and I was in Boston. And uh, I guess right before that, I had been going to school at CU Boulder, Colorado University in Boulder. And I had been studying international affairs and Chinese and had actually lived abroad in China and was very much on a path to be completely on the other side of the whole world. Uh, Learning languages really was interested in doing some sort of cross-cultural consulting or diplomacy of some sort. And um had just really found a fascination with learning about other cultures, especially through their lens and their language. And that was really what inspired me the most and had really been kind of my guiding point, my North Star um, for many years. And I ended up with a a job in Boston out of college that was working within the U.S.-China field, had a few different transitions between different jobs, um, ended up working with some different entrepreneurs and just kind of getting my butt kicked for a while, just working yeah. really grueling work weeks for very little pay. Um, and then I actually ended up working with one of my really good long-term friends who was like the only person I knew in Boston. And he had just bought a moving company, like right when I had moved to Boston. And he said he needed a little help in the summer months in that peak season. And I thought I was going to help him for maybe two weeks. Ended up getting super sucked into the company. Um, we ended up like really building this company from about 600 
$5,000 to $1.2 million in the next two years and building software that really helped operate the whole thing, training and hiring a lot of different people that could actually help us get out of being the business. Yep. And it was like the most boot camp, mind bending <laughs> experience of yeah. my life of just like really what it meant to be an entrepreneur. And it was truly incredible. He really became a, a very dear mentor to me and taught me just kind of how to get out of my own way and taught me a lot of really valuable skills of just how to really look at how a business is like a living, breathing organism mm. that is kind of mm. contracting and expanding. And you really have to like be sensitive to it and that it's all directly proportionate to the amount of energy and effort that you put into it. And so I really started seeing that and like, you know, the feedback was immediate. Like if you messed up on something, you were going to get your butt kicked like an hour later. And so, you know, every day it was kind of like sending your team out to battle and like you needed to know everything that was going on. <laughs> Otherwise, like a couch would go through a wall. Sure. So, yeah, yeah. 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 And it was just a really incredible experience. Um, Very, very tough. And I was out there moving furniture, showing up at people's doors and people would be like, is the other guy in the truck? Like you're sending this little girl to come like move this heavy dresser. And so it was just kind of battling a lot of those gender stereotypes and, you know, really pushing myself because the expectation for one of the guys was here. But for me, it was like way up here. Mm -hmm. Like there was no margin for error. And so it really just taught me how to be a high performer, really be diligent in the way that I'm paying attention. And February 2020 hit, the pandemic yeah. hit. There was a mass exodus out of Boston where every single school just like had to move out in the course of like a weekend. And we probably moved 350 people in like wow. two to four days. Oh it was nuts. God. And, you know, after that, it was kind of like my entire community had left Boston. And I was really wondering, like, what am I doing here? You know, I feel like I've kind of leveled up my skill set. There is definitely like a big reshuffling happening in the world. You know, if you're really paying attention, you can see that like, suddenly everyone just paused. COVID really mm -hmm. made everyone like, you couldn't do anything. And it was the first time that all of us kind of got off the hamster wheel and uh, looked around and, and they're like, a little bit, yeah. holy crap, what is happening? <laughs> Who's in charge right now? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and um, yeah, it just kind of really flipped my world upside down of just like really getting to observe what was really going on and kind of the way that everything was structured in the world. And I think I just started recognizing like, wow, interesting, kind of everything that we've ever experienced in life as humans, someone once upon a time came up with, someone yep. made it up and like had an idea and then made it something yep. in reality. And I think that that really started to like open my mind to what the possibilities were of just what was happening in the world. And the fact that like, we could also be those innovators that we mm -hmm. could think of things that are maybe really ridiculously outside of the box or seemingly impossible. And around that time for me, like an idea was kind of starting to grow about, you know, I could really get out a deep tangent on it, but I'll try to keep it pretty narrow right now. But just kind of observing the way that like the system had kind of broken down because yeah. no one really trusted each other. And what does that really mean? You know, we used to come from these little tiny groups of people where maybe you lived in a village or it was originally a tribe and, you know, we had small pods of people that usually maxed out around 150 people. Mm. And, you know, there's done a, they've done a lot of research in that now for like departments and organizations or industries or military factions kind of max out around that 150 gotcha. mark. And I really was like fascinated with that idea and what that might mean for us to actually rebuild trust at a local level. 
that kind of like starting with you, you know, every single person being kind of the main character of their own story. Yeah. What does it mean to actually focus on your 150, those closest relationships to you when it doesn't even have to be by like geographic proximity? It could be, you know, now with technology, your 150 could be all over the world, but it's the people that you trust the most, that you hold most dear in those relationships that you want to continue to foster. And so that was kind of this guiding thread that I started following of just like, what are like these <laughs> social organisms? Like how are teams built? You know, who am I? How do I define what's important to me? And then kind of as this journey was progressing and I was still in Boston and then I started really feeling this call to come back to Colorado. And I had really never felt that call. I was very wow. much like, get me out of here. I never sure. want to come back here. <laughs> and, um, you know, my mom and my sister were living here, kind of hunkered down because of the pandemic. And um, I started talking to my family about potentially coming back. And they're like, please come back. Like, we would love to have you here. We don't really know what to do with this farm. We've been trying to sell it for the last five years. My parents had had all of the animals move off the property. We had gone through multiple, multiple buyers. And we actually had someone who was lined up and ready to sign the closing documents. And for some reason, they just walked, completely ghosted us. And like, we were ready to really let wow. everything go. And so when it came back, it just kind of felt like this boomerang of like, oh my God, why can we not part ourselves from this mm. property? And I had come back in mid-July and actually thrown a pretty big event for a bunch of different investors and entrepreneurs and really tried to pitch this as something yeah. that someone could create, you know, all the health and wellness centers or whatever you've got in mind. Someone <laughs> please take it off our plate. <laughs> And everyone fell in love with it. And they're like, this is absolutely an incredible property. You have to do something with it. I was like, no, you you have to do you something do. with it. I, I can't do anything with this. And, um, you know, after that event and like everyone was so encouraging about it, but no one wanted to take it on. I really had to sit with that for a while. And then in around August, my mom had very synchronistically gotten connected to Nick and Marissa from Drylands Agroecology Research, yep. the nonprofit that has done all of our uh, regenerative land design now. And they created this beautiful, beautiful master plan that really showed us what we could do to bring the land back to life. And so soon after that, they were starting to go through this process. I was still in Boston wrapping up my life. I was talking to my mom about dates to move back. And she's like, I don't know what it is, but I think you need to get back here by October 15th. I'm just getting some sort of download, but yeah, there's something yeah. in the air. And I was like, okay, that sounds very woo-woo, but I guess I'll like <laughs> make all my plans on this very arbitrary date. And I got back here on October 15th with um, Charles, the, the guy who runs the moving company. We brought yeah. two moving vans straight here. <laughs> and two days later, there was a massive wildfire that okay. came over the ridgeline within 45 minutes. And we barely had enough time to evacuate everything. Uh, we got all our, our little flock of chickens off the property. And like, luckily, we had these two moving vehicles that we just piled everything into and had to evacuate and were off property for over a week. They wouldn't even let you get within like a mile of wow. this entire region. And we were just watching videos of this massive wildfire coming down the ridgeline, just eating all of the houses and our family's house was right next door. And so we had no idea if our farm had gone up in flames, if the house was gone. And when we finally were able to come back a week later, we walked on the property and the whole property in the back area was completely singed. Everything had burned right up until this one structure, our big outdoor riding arena, that it stopped three feet in front of that. And the wind had changed direction and ripped it north. And it ripped it 
all on the backside of the property, jumped over the highway and didn't touch a single thing in the heart of the farm where all the real burnable stuff was. Right, right. And I think after that, for all of us, it was just kind of like, oh my God, are we supposed to be here? That's a big like shock of like truly making you recognize what you have, really reminding right. you how fortunate you are to have something. And we just hit the ground running after that. We've truly been like sprinting nonstop since October 2020. And in that time, we have implemented probably 80% of Mick's original master plan. We have a hoop house that is now an all-season greenhouse. We've got pigs and cows and chickens in rotation. Um, We had an indigenous foods garden that Marissa Pulaski led last season. And we have had numerous events happen in the Yellow Barn all over the property that have just really grown this community. And, you know, I'd have to say that like all of those different experiences that I had had throughout my life of like studying abroad and getting my ass kicked on this moving company, all of those things actually gave me exactly what I needed to be right here in this seat at this desk in this office running all the things because a lot of it just came down to management and really understanding people and understanding how an ecosystem breathes essentially that, you know, a lot of these tenants from like land and ecology ecological design are absolutely transferable to social design and business design. And so we just started really looking at that and like building out our systems so that they married up at every single level, that all the patterns of everything that we're looking at were able to stack on each other and that there's multifunctionality and that people are actually really cohesively working together. So that's kind of a very long intro, yeah, but no, it's beautiful. <laughs> gets no, you it's, it's a great, it's great. The, the two things I want to touch on is the business aspect of like walking into a situation where, you know, you just got, like you say, you just got your ass kicked, like in the city, like in this startup mode, essentially, right? I'm just like every day waking up, getting stuff done, building software, like building a business, like figuring it out day to day, right? And now you come into a situation where it's quite different. <laughs> you have to like, create a business model out of a farm, right? And it's 21st century, right? There's a lot of different elements. Like, I guess after you sort of made the decision of, you know, settling down, like, okay, I'm going to be here. I'm going to do something. Like, what were some of the, I guess, first things you had in mind of like, okay, how do we actually make this a sustainable business so we could be here, you know, as a family, generations to come? Like, I guess putting your, your business hat on and like looking at the lay of the land, pun intended, like, What were some of the first things that you thought of like, okay, how can we make this a business, right? What what can we do to make this this happen? Was that difficult to to look at and assess? You know, it's so funny. And that's such a good question because it's so near and dear to my heart. And I remember when I first moved back here, you know, this place had just been in shambles for the last Mm -hmm. five years. And I remember I was up in like the upper arena lounge, just cleaning the place and trying to put in new locks on the doors and putting Wi-Fi in. And my sister's just standing there and she's just like, I don't think this is going to work. There's just too much to do. (laughs) On day two, I don't think this is going to (laughs) work. And, you know, it was just, it was starting with something and it was looking at like the potential that this place had. Mm -hmm. And I think what's been so different about this project is that we never really looked at it as like, we're going to do farming and that's what's going to bring in all the money and we're going to like make our money off of a head of lettuce. And I think what we've always really aimed towards is like, how do we create enough resilience and diversity in the economic structure of the property so that we can do farming because we know it's the right thing to do, mm-hmm. not because we're trying to make the money from that. And so I think initially it really started with a lot of brainstorming sessions. Charles and I were very used to that through the moving company with Small Hall for right. very many late nights. And we just spent 
hours and hours just whiteboarding and thinking about what all of the things could do. And, you know, it would seem like every single time we'd have an idea, it'd be my mom saying, no, you can't do that. We've tried that. The county won't let you do that. There's permits involved with that. You don't have the rights to do that. And I'm like, what can we do? You can't do anything on this property. And so it was just a lot of like, all right, you know, trial and error. I put together the whole website initially. We put together the Instagram and we started hosting small Great Thank you. Small events was a big piece of it. It's just like get people out to the land. You know, even if yep. there's nothing here right now, just show them what it's like to be on land. And so we came up with this um, this whole idea called the Farm Hop and Farm Fest, where kind of like a a bar hop where yeah. you were going from farm to farm <laughs> and we would bring people out and we would just do big tours and then we'd have like a big open air market and we'd have live music and food. And then I think the big thing we did next was the first tree planting. We planted 3,500 trees in the course of two days. And I was literally just running around all of Boulder, (laughs) handing out flyers, talking to literally every single human, like, please come out here, check out what we're doing, come plant a tree, there's free lunches, come hang out. And that was huge. I think that kind of like put us on the map for people recognizing, oh, wow, you know, this old equestrian center now is actually coming back to life. And so the business model has really been, you know, if you have the entire supply chain, which we realized was incredibly fragile after COVID, you know, everything has expanded to such a ridiculous length that there are so many pieces in between where your food is produced to actually your dinner table. And that as things are shifting and we recognize the, the fragility of those systems, we saw that, you know, what if we shrunk down the entire supply chain and we brought it back down to a local level and we decentralized it? We have a central location, a land-based location, but what if we decentralize all of the different aspects of the supply chain? So now, you know, three years later, it's been like this very long journey of just like finding people, seeing what the puzzle pieces that they have, slotting them in, seeing if they work in that that location, that range. And I just kind of came up with all the different kinds of agreements to get people to function together and um, really understanding like the numbers and putting those systems into place. And so now, you know, a beautiful example of what this looks like is, um, you know, the olive egg. They are the chicken operation on the entire property Mm -hmm, and they mm -hmm. own that piece of the supply chain. This woman who runs the operation, she knows everything there is to know about chickens. And so she's the one that's been breeding them for years. She understands how to process them. They're now in rotational grazing patterns going through the silvopastures that Dar designed and implemented. And because she can hold that piece specifically, it means that like the farm itself doesn't have to like hold everything that's operating here. We can be the people that are interweaving between and kind of like sewing together the different pieces so that they can operate holistically. And there's a bunch of different little entities that we have operating here. There's a landscaping company that also has a nonprofit that does educational gardening. There is a guy who has these take-home garden kits that have like a subterranean watering mechanism that you put a bunch of different amendments in and you get like 3x the yield. There's a girl who has a compost tea and steam weeding business. And uh, there is a van conversion company that does like all of our construction and building on the property and has also built vehicles for us that like we've got a handyman van now, which is literally like an entire workshop inside of a van. Yeah. And we have the stock market, which is like yeah. corn stock stock, which is this amazing, beautiful little shipping container that is a little grocery store inside. Yeah. And uh, we have Threshold Collective that does all of these beautiful regenerative events. So health and wellness that's really focused on regenerative farming communities. So that's yoga and wellness yeah. and all of these beautiful things. And then um, 
DAR, obviously, Dry Lands Agroecology Research does all of kind of like the holistic land design and implementation and a lot of the farming, a lot of the programming here. And then we have a lot of educational programming for young kids and adults. And a lot of it's like the vision's always been, how can this be summer camp all year for every age group? Mm. You know, all of us want to play. We all want to go back to that. And we also want to have an impact. And it would be amazing if all of these different trades and skills and things are actually useful. You were learning because there was a need for those things to actually happen on the farm anyway. But you also got to try your hand in a wide variety of different things to see what really resonated with you. And my fascination in all of this has been how do we change this model from, you know, the stereotypical, there is a slot that needs to be filled and we're just going to fit the most qualified person in with that. Instead, we really say, okay, here are all the things that need to get done. Who's available and interested and really inspired by what we're doing at the ethos level? And then what are their unique gifts? What are their skill sets? What are their talents? And how can we pick out from all the different things that need to happen and craft a role around this person so that they can truly be in their zone of genius? Because when they're in their zone of genius, you're not going to spend nearly as much time micromanaging someone because they've already set that standard for themselves. They really, really care and they want to see whatever they're doing truly come to fruition and be done in the right way. And so now our role is mostly just being like the guardrails, the guiding force of saying, okay, does this work for you? Are you getting compensated? Can we actually craft a role where like, we know that there's economic inflow coming from these entities, but maybe over here where you're super passionate, you might just have to volunteer. So how do we create something that actually finds equilibrium where you have enough time to take care of yourself, do the things that really inspire you and charge you up. And you're also getting the necessities done that also get you paid and pay the bills. Yeah. I mean, it's, I love how you're allowing other people to interact with the land as well. Like whether it's a business, whether it's there to volunteer, whether it's there to come to an event. I I love the idea of sort of having these little areas of the land where there's like a specialty that goes into it because, Hey, like there's the chicken area, right? Let's, we have, we have this here as an, like an asset. Let's use it. Let's find somebody who can, you know, get to its full potential, right? Because you can't do everything, right? You can't run everything on on the entire property, but to have people come in and and use it, almost like have them build their little business themselves, right? Or their little dream on the land. And, you know, like they don't own property, right? They don't own, you know, it's like rent a little office space a little bit. It's almost like a co-working co-working spot. That's exactly right? what it is. That's exactly how we framed it. <laughs> yeah. So, but it's outdoors, right? So, you know, we usually think we works inside and office spaces is outwork, right? It's, it's this yeah. sort of aspect of, of co-working outdoors and, and using the land in a variety of different ways, because it has so much to offer. The next thing I wanted to touch on was like regenerative farming and like how were you first introduced to it? Like what was the learning curve like? Like, did you even, were you even aware of it, right? When you, when you bought the land came and then like, did they just like knock on the door and say, Hey, like we're DAR or did you reach out and say, Hey, we want to incorporate regenerative farming practices here. Like, I guess just Talk about your relationship with that because that is, it's starting to get a little momentum where I think people are realizing, especially where it's, you know, your own property, your own land, it can work for you in so many positive ways. But I guess talk about your introduction into that. Well, you know, I think I was really fortunate growing up here. I got to go to a Waldorf school. And if you've heard of Rudolf Steiner, uh, he really came up with these ideas around biodynamic farming. And what it really meant to be in relationship with the land. And I mean, these these practices are very, very ancient. Don't yeah, get me wrong. They're the original practice. Very right? much comes from yeah. 
Exactly. And indigenous cultures have farmed this way for centuries. I mean, this is really like our connection with the land and what you put into your body. And I think, you know, for me growing up in this little boulder bubble, really, and getting to be on land, um, a lot of it was about, you know, my mom had a little bi biodynamic CSA garden. And so I was very much like in that world. And my dad was insanely health conscious, you know. I, when I was 14, I didn't get the sex talk. I got the sugar talk. And it was more of like, <laughs> this is the impact of sugar on your body. And, you know, it like really blew my mind. And I went through a big phase where like I was very much eating all the crap that was available out there once sure. I was on my own. And I think it's been very much a full circle of coming back and recognizing what am I putting into my body? How do I want to live in relationship to the world around me? And I think there's a lot of us that feel this very deep calling to come back to land, to really like, re-establish that relationship that I think is very, very deep in our DNA, yeah. that we want to be connected with nature because we are of nature. And so getting back into a relationship with your food is kind of that first portal that you can step through to do that. And so I had very much grown up in a world that was aware of food and the way that we do farming. And I had studied a lot of that anyway, and had been able to grow up on land. And so my introduction to this actually came through a good friend of mine recommending this movie called Kiss the Ground. Mm. And you may have heard of that, but it talks really a lot about what regenerative farming looks like, uh, carbon sequestration, and really yeah. the whole aspect, the kind of the tagline of that entire film was that the quickest way to not just fight climate change, but reverse it was to do regenerative farming, was to take mm. care of the soil. The yeah. answer was in the soil. Yep. And so I saw that movie and I called my mom immediately and I was like, you've got to watch this film. It's talking about everything we've always been dreaming about. And she saw it and she's like, you know, that's crazy that you just said that because I literally just got connected to these regenerative land designers that are like seven minutes down the road. And they've got their whole little demonstration property called Elk Run. You know, they're really interested in working with us and doing it like on a larger scale here. And so, you know, from there, I came back and started spending a lot of time with Nick and Marissa. We would pretty much just like whiteboard late into the night, just yeah. talking about like, what are they doing? What are like my skill sets? Who are we? Why are we all here? How did this all very yeah. synchronistically happen at the same time? And from that, you know, I will never forget just like something that Nick was really explaining to me is that when he starts looking at a piece of land of like, what does it want to be? How does like the water move? How does nature really want to show itself? And how do we facilitate that? And that every single piece of land is not the last. Mm. There's always differentiation. And so we can look at like the high level patterns, and then you can get down to the details at the micro level. And everything he was saying about regenerative land design was just hitting my brain and like I have seen that in business design. I have seen that in uh, people systems. Yeah. Everything that you're saying to me already has context in my brain from all of my other experiences. And so for me, the learning curve was actually pretty smooth. I just like could piece everything together and overlay it on a lot of information that I already had. And the concepts just made a lot of sense. Of course, you know, you want to bring the soil back to life. How do you do that? You work with nature. You don't control it. You don't use pesticides and herbicides because that's just trying to dominate something versus mm. actually working with it. And nature's constantly moving and adapting and changing. You know, whatever pesticides you used a, years ago, a year ago, nature will adapt and learn how to overcome that or shift around it. Yeah. So will all the pests with it. So it's just a, a losing battle in the long run. And so, you know, so much of this was just like, 
spending time with them and getting immersed in it and then just learning all the names, you know, and I had to memorize all the different plants that we were planting out in the silver pasture <laughs> because I was talking to everyone about like, come plant all these trees. And they're like, well, what kind of trees? And I was like, oh my God, I got to memorize this entire list. <laughs> but it made a Good lot question. of sense. And like, <laughs> yeah, by the way, it's uh, apple, pear, plum, mulberry, hackberry, serviceberry, gooseberry, false indigo, and Siberian pea shrub. <laughs> you have memorized Everybody. it successfully. <laughs> Yeah. And so it was just like, you know, how do you explain this to someone who doesn't have any context for yeah. farming? How do you give them some level of understanding just at the basic level? And usually how I approach that is talking about things that we're very, very familiar with. You know, you're very familiar with yourself. You know, that's like probably number one. You are your own favorite hobby. You're probably the thing that you spend the most time thinking yeah. about and observing and interacting with. And so I just really started looking at these concepts of like, okay, you know, we're talking about soil, but most people don't have probably not even put their hands in the soil, sadly. Yeah. They don't understand what that means. They don't understand about the microbiology and how all these things interact with each other. But the way that I started really thinking about this is like, okay, you know, when we deal with human relationships, we're also essentially farming, we're gardening, we are mm. tending to soil. Yeah. You know, once you have communication between two entities and they're talking to each other, you're starting to establish that this is the development of social soil. We're starting to build it. We're starting to recognize what is the lay of the land. You know, you might have relationships that are dry and degraded right. and barren. Yeah. It's just a wasteland. Yeah. Need some love. You know, yeah. or they're exactly. And maybe there are other ones that like you really nurtured and you put a lot of energy into and it's this beautiful blooming garden. And really, you know, I started seeing how this relationship of like your 150 relationships is kind of like the whole garden that you're tending to. And the further out, you know, I kind of think of it as a spiral going outward from yourself. The further out it goes, you know, there's still people that are in your your garden, but they're the relationships that maybe, you know, it's not degrading, it's just further away. It's stuff yeah. that you're not really tending to as much. And that the relationships that are closest to you, you know, in permaculture design, they call that zone zone zero. That's like home base. That is like where all the main activity happens. It's where you put the home. It's maybe you've got a few chickens and like your herb gardens that you're gonna be pulling in for your cooking day to day, you know, it's where the primary activity happens. And that's the same with our social groups, you know, like, if you are your primary entity, and you're right. taking care of your own home base, and your own garden, mm. that next person to you, whether that is a, a partner, or a best friend, or whatever that might look like for you, that's probably the relationship you're tending to most, you're putting the most energy into it. And it can either be a really positive relationship where there's a lot of abundance and it feeds both of you, or it could be a really draining relationship. And I think a lot of us are kind of recognizing like what is toxicity? What is like a yeah. dry, degraded, depleted landscape in a social setting? So how do we want to tend the relationships around us? How do we want to revitalize them so that they feed all of the people that are a part of that relationship group? Amazing. I want to kind of end on a little bit of the future. And, you know, I know there's a lot of moving parts when, when dealing with land and, and dealing with being a business as well. There's, there's going to be so many variables that go into week to week, day to day, month to month. But when you look at like almost three years now, I guess you've you sort of, you know, been back day, day to day, like figuring this thing out. What does the next sort of three to five years look like? Like what's on, you know, your whiteboard right now trying to figure out, you know, the future and as you move with the land, building new things, creating new partnerships, you know, having the events, you know, having the the stock market, the little grocery, like there's a lot of these parts that are foundationally sort of there now. And 
now it's like looking at, okay, how do we scale as much as we can, right? Being a physical land location, it's it's very different than like you, like software or moving company, right? There's, there's a little bit of a difference there, but like, how do you look at the future and, and what are some of the successes and goals that you would like to achieve? Yeah. You know, I think right out the gate, we really started with this idea that this is a demonstration. It's mm. a demonstration for what it all could look like. And that by bringing all these different organizations and demonstrating what all of the different systems could be, the hope is that once we max out on our capacity, you know, we have a whole compost and food delivery program and we've got the moving company that still operates here so they can share the vehicles and all of these synergies that are now growing. You know, what we found is that all of these little tiny businesses that that are operating, eventually those people will be able to manage a second location and then a third Mm. and a fourth. Mm -hmm. And so that what we're seeing is more of like a horizontal growth instead of it being a vertical growth where we own everything. Mm-hmm. We're not trying to expand Yellow Barn right. across the globe. It's actually expanding the model itself. And so that as we start to hit capacity about what we can realistically and economically service, because we know there's a certain uh, service radius that we can go out to before we start kind of losing money on that. And so what we're already starting to see is like as demand starts peaking in certain locations and it's right outside of our service area, you know, we can do that right now, but it's not very economical. But the goal is to make those routes tighter and tighter so that we have a really dedicated community that we know consistently, this is how many pigs we need each year. This is how many cows we need. This is how many chickens, because this gives us a predictability in our local marketplace because we're feeding a certain number of families. That number is roughly around 150 households, wow. so roughly about 300 people. Wow. And once we hit that capacity, then the goal is actually to take the model and take it to another location because mm-hmm. this can only move by geographic hubs. And so, you know, the next location could be in downtown Boulder and there's already a farm and I'm already thinking that would be like a perfect location. And we just asked them, you know, what kind of systems do you need? Do you want someone to come in and run all of your chicken operations? Would you like mm-hmm. a little shipping container grocery store? Would that work for your community? And so I think as we become like more knowledgeable in what this systems design looks like, we can approach them and say, let us help you assess what you need and let's get it implemented and up and running and then train your people to manage those systems. And so maybe we have like a manager that's an expert in the chicken operation and they're managing three or four different locations, but you actually have the on the farm labor, those people that are there, they understand what's actually happening on the day to day running these systems. And so now you're creating economic diversity so that they can actually have additional income streams that don't just rely on the head of lettuce. So that way, if you get a bad crop, you're not totally out and you can't pay your labor. You've got the egg business that's cranking and people are always going to want eggs. And so we just consistently are looking like, how can we diversify out all of the the revenue streams to make this more resilient and copying what nature does? And then create this as like an a la carte menu that someone could come here and say, gosh, you know, I, I love the fact that you've got these little grow kits or the fact that there's a compost tea business. And all of these businesses eventually will want to be able to expand to different locations. And we're just kind of setting up the basic infrastructure so that they can do that. And it's a beautiful win-win for the land-based partners and these smaller entities that are coming in. How long do you think that would be before you kind of have that? Because going back to what you said before, you know, you you always thought you'd be like, maybe like a consultant of some sort and have like that type of thing. And this is kind of, you're kind of putting that hat back on potentially getting the workflow, getting the efficiency, getting the blueprint down, you know, the yellow, the yellow barn farm blueprint. And then you can kind of go and systematically implement that in these little, you know, communities, whether it's like you said, 
150, 300 people. Like there's communities like this everywhere, right? Not just even Colorado, but like tons and tons of tons and tons of areas in in the US. So that seems to be like a really cool idea. Like how how far along you think you are where you feel comfortable, you know, delivering that, like having that official like blueprint, right? That you can kind of go and say, hey, let's let's do this at a second place. And you know, it's so funny, it's because people used to ask me in college, like, what are you gonna do when you graduate? I have no idea. I'm going to make up something that sounds cool. And I came up with an international business consultant. I was like, I don't know anything about business. I'm never going to be able to do something like that. But here I've kind of found myself yeah. weirdly full circle coming into that. And I think that that's actually ultimately the dream is really like with all of us, you know, Nick and Marissa from DAR and Charles with Small Hall. And we have these leads that are really becoming experts in a specific area. And what I love about this is like, it's not such a narrow niche of focus where I think like a lot of our, our education has kind of pigeonholed people into yeah. only knowing yeah. one topic extremely well, but it means that they're siloed because they're not actually looking at the patterns across multiple disciplines. Whereas I think this is like really forced all of us to really look at everything holistically. And my lens of that has really been people and people are all over the world. And I think the goal will ultimately be to, you know, work with businesses and people and these groups in multiple different countries and ideally in multiple languages. And like all of the framework is very, very similar because when you get down to it, people are very similar in a lot of ways, but we've got a lot of differentiation in culture. The same way that we do with climate and land. Mm-hmm. You know, you can come and from like Boulder, which or Colorado, which is very dry and tends to be quite barren and drought ridden and then go to somewhere like Costa Rica mm-hmm. and the patterns are still there. You know, we're still dealing with soil and trees and animals. They're just different patterning. And so I think the same can be applied to people and businesses. And so, you know, I, I think it's within, you know, the next two, two to three years, I think yeah. we're already to get a lot of interest from other parties that are asking all of us to, you know, come out to Tanzania or come to California or come to Costa Rica. And we're like, God, we want to, but we have to get this one down. <laughs> we have to actually prove that this whole thing works. And thus far it has been working, but it's not at the point where I feel like, cool, we've hit equilibrium. Yeah. I, I have known that our horizon is about a seven year game plan because it takes about seven years on average for any ecosystem to reach a point of equilibrium. Mm -hmm. And while we might be able to branch out well before that, it's like that will be the point where there is consistency and the patterns are recognized and people are stable and it's really grown to what it needs to ultimately be to be a full-fledged demonstration. Wow. Wow. Azure, thank you so much. This was uh, an awesome conversation. Like I I learned so much and, and just visiting the visiting the land and, and the farm like it was it was a truly unique space you know having so many people there from from the community like people engaging with the land like music like markets like there's something for everybody and it's just like wow like this is like what it's all about like building something like this for so many people to interact with i think it's just like man it's like something we all i think attain attain to in some ways is building something where we have a true community of of people like interacting with each other, helping each other, being there for each other, right? Because like you said, I mean, things could happen, whether it's happened to the world or happen in our local community. I mean, look just like the brush fires you said. I mean, that affects, yeah. you know, it could affect your your entire life and your entire family's life and, and generations, like if you have to move and go somewhere. Like so like to have that tight knits community like there physically, we live in this digital world, right? It's 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 cool too. But that physical relationship is still so special when you see it like in person, you interact with it. Like you, there's a feeling there, right? You, you, you do feel something. Appreciate you taking the time and like best of luck for, for the next decade. Yeah, thank you. Really appreciate the conversation. It was fun. <laughs>